0: thank you all for having me it's my pleasure to speak to the uk myeloma autumn research day i'm going to be talking about what questions are current myeloma trials not answering i'm dr Vinay prasad i'm a professor here at the university of california san francisco i'm a practicing hemonc, doc and i take care of myeloma in addition to all other malignancies so let's get started i think we have to always remember when we talk about multiple myeloma that patients care about two things and only two things. They care about living longer, their duration of survival, their, their overall survival, and they care about living better. And living better is best ascertained with health-related quality of life that actually measures someone's entire cancer journey. That doesn't just measure the first six months on treatment or the first 12 months, that measures the entire cancer journey. It's a cumulative experience. Those are the only two things patients care about. Everything else is something that doctors care about that we invented that sometimes correlate with these things, but not always. So let's talk about that. Doctors care about. We talk a lot about depth of response. For us, it makes a big difference if someone's in VGPR versus CR. We talk about minimal residual disease. This is, to this date, still a prognostic marker, i.e., if you attain lower rates of minimal residual disease, you will have better PFS and better OS. It's prognostic, but it is not yet proven to be a surrogate, meaning that if you chase it, if you take someone who is MRD positive and make them MRD negative, that that person does better, or that drugs that do that on average do better. It hasn't yet established surrogacy. We care about shiny new drugs. We like new drugs. We like more drugs. We care about quadruplets. Patients don't care about quadruplets. They care about living longer, living better. We care about continuous therapy, and the drug companies especially care about that. We care about cellular therapy, we care about novel targets. For the patient, the target, the mechanism of action doesn't matter, it's living longer, living better. We care about publications and journals, we care about posters, we care about opening more and more trials, and we care, unfortunately, about the consulting payments that come to us. We have big problems in multiple myeloma studies. That's going to be the theme of this talk. I hope to persuade you by the end that even though we have an abundance of riches, we have many drugs that actually do work, We have big problems with our trials. We're not answering the questions patients want us to answer. We're not answering the most basic questions. For instance, we don't know how to approve drugs. It may sound crazy, but we really don't know. We don't know when to treat the disease. Also gonna sound crazy, but we don't know, and I'll show that to you. And we don't know how to sequence the good drugs that we actually do have. I hope to persuade you of all these things. Let's talk about approving drugs. How do myeloma drugs come to the market? If I worked at one of the pharmaceutical firms that were developing myeloma drugs, I'd ask my employees one thing. Does our new drug have single-agent activity? I.e., by itself, does it generate responses? And if the answer is yes, well, then you've got a path to the U.S. market. These are just some of the drugs approved in the last few years on the basis of uncontrolled studies. It's the majority of drugs in multiple myeloma. You've got Ticlistimab, selinexor, or Belantimab, Melflufen. And you've got both CAR-T products, Cell and Siltacel. They're all approved based on response rate. These are the response rates and look at those CAR-T products. They stand out a little bit ahead of the rest. Not so fast. Not so fast. Those response rates are exaggerated, because unlike any other class of drugs, the FDA has permitted CAR-T to omit patients from the denominator, patients who actually gave their cells, who were waiting desperately for these products, but who didn't live to receive the products. And those patients should be added to the denominator. And if you do that, these are what the response rates will fall to. In a paper published by Mani Mo and myself and colleagues, we Reanalyze all the CAR-T studies with the correct intention-to-treat denominator, and we find on average response rate falls 8 to 12%. When we don't have single-agent activity for a product, when we don't have that, we do randomized control trials, and we measure PFS. And that's how the products panobinostat and elotuzumab, drugs that lack single-agent activity, came to the U.S. market. How do all of these drugs fare when we approve drugs? Do patients live longer and live better for having them? Let's run through it. Let's talk about panobinostat initially approved for people multiply refractory and it was based on a subset of the randomized controlled trial among patients who had already received bortezomib and an immunomodulatory agent this was the pfs curve in the subset that led to accelerated approval you can see there's only 100 people in each arm but there was some pfs signal but it was a subgroup but there was an effect in the overall population but just a few years later seven years later Panabinistat's not there anymore. It's been withdrawn from the U.S. market. The company says the reason is that they couldn't accrue for the confirmatory study. I don't know what the reason is. That's what they say the reason is. That's what they say it is. But be that as it may, panabinistat, it's gone. Let's talk about ELO. ELO is a drug that appears to have some PFS benefit in relapsed multiple myeloma, relapsed refractory myeloma. But in the newly diagnosed myeloma setting, it can't even beat Revlimid dexamethasone. It failed an Eloquent One. It can't even beat Revdex for PFS. It is a very unusual product. It's failing in the frontline setting. And for that reason, I put a partial line through ELO. I think the promise uh, didn't materialize. Let's talk about drugs that didn't even come to the market. Let's not forget about pembrolizumab. This is the study by Sadhus Mani and colleagues. Pembrolizumab actually killed patients. It had an overall survival Death signal, like all PD-1 drugs, didn't come to the U.S. market. Let's talk about venetoclax and Bellini. Bellini has a PFS benefit. And if we anchor on PFS benefits, we may miss what Bellini had, which was an OS decrement. It has death signal. Now, people are still pursuing this in 1114, and I look forward to those randomized trials. But what I don't look forward to are more 1114 anecdotes and uncontrolled studies. Mel Flufin Melflufin was approved on the basis of response rate. We have a paper in Translational Oncology that analyzes the regulatory history of melflufin. It's worth your time. The first thing to say is that melflufin is this incredibly clever and novel molecule. They take something that I hadn't heard of, melphalan, and they add this thing to the side. And that's what they call a new molecule. And they don't actually come to the US market by comparing themselves against an alkylator. They come to the US market based on a response rate. Well, I'm not surprised that a modification of melphalan has some response rate. But what I was surprised was the regulatory timeline. From February 2021, it had accelerated approval. By July 2021, the FDA had an alert that the OCEAN trial, the confirmatory study, had a death signal. And by October, the FDA asked the company to withdraw the product. This occurred, this short timeline of here you have it and now let's take it away, unnecessarily, the FDA didn't need to grant it accelerated approval, as I'll try to prove to you through this talk, against a control arm that was substandard. The control arm of this study, POMDEX, had already been proven to be inferior to other standards of care for the relevant endpoint of PFS, even though they had a substandard control arm, even though they were a me-too drug, they still couldn't even generate a PFS win here. And worse than that, the overall survival data showed 5.2 months shorter from receipt of Melflufin than Palm in this study the company protested the FDA's decision they went to the FDA and they said look if you look at the subset of people who didn't have a stem cell transplant or had it more than 36 months ago well it looks kind of favorable in that subgroup analysis this is a classic example of desperation subgroup analyses and as the FDA mocked them at their meeting by showing them data for people randomized in March do better on Melflufin, but people randomized in July do better on POMDEX you can you can clutch it. You can clutch its straws when you're when you have a ineffective product. Finally, melflufin odac votes. It's off the market. Scratch that out. What about belantamab mafidotin? You've got the mafidotin moiety. Mafodotin it loves the eyes. It causes ocular keratitis. Belantimab-Mafidotin had a response rate, a decent one, but we just had the results of Dream 3, and Dream 3 shows conclusively the primary endpoint of PFS was hazard ratio 1.03. That was the primary endpoint it failed to meet. Grade 3 keratopathy is the same as prior reported data. The overall survival was exactly the same. Belantimab, it looks like it's failing. The accelerated approval failed to be met by successful post-market studies. Let's talk about Celenexer what I like to call the drug from hell. It's quite intolerable. Patients who take it report that it's quite intolerable. And Selenexor, although it has a sexy mechanism of action, it's best trial, the Boston study, is riddled with problems. The biggest problem of which is they're doing sally velcade dex versus velcade dex long after velcade dex was an inappropriate second-line therapy. And they're taking people who've mostly already had velcade. Of course, giving them more velcade is not going to be better. And even here, they're just trying to eke out a PFS benefit. This is a terrible... Negligent, randomized controlled trial. Who would take someone who got VRD and then give them VD? In this era, when this trial was run, it was unthinkable. We wrote a reply to The Lancet. We say this, quote, Given that bortezomib and dexamethasone combination treatment had been shown to be inferior to contemporary treatments in clinical trials well before Boston began, why did Grosicki and colleagues considered bortezomib-dex for the control group in patients in the U.S.? How could they do it? And that's a problem I have with this study and many myeloma studies. Aaron Goodman puts it succinctly. Mayo Clinic, NCCN, ESMO, they all recommend triplets, but Boston uses a doublet. IRBs and PIs approved this trial? He goes further. He says Boston fulfills the Goodman Pentad for a bad randomized trial. PFS is the primary endpoint, not overall survival. A substandard control arm. The PIs have conflicts of interest with the sponsor. It is a costly drug, and it had the inappropriate use of crossover. In other words, that even after they progressed, they got more Velcade. They're not getting Darragh that was also egregious. That won't affect PFS, but it will affect OS if this trial ever were to eke out an OS win. What about IdaCell? We talk so much about CAR-T products being so transformational, but IdaCell has problems. It's not the same as Tisagenlecleucel and B-Cell-ALL, and the original data that came out of Penn, because the problem with IdaCell is it doesn't cure anybody. 100% of people eventually progress, and if 100% of people progress, and if the product costs $420,000, which it does, And if the median treatment-free duration is 11 months, we are paying $40,000 per month of PFS. And that assumes that a control regimen would have zero PFS. It's giving all the credit to the product, which is untrue. It's likely to be even more. Idacel will fail the cost-effectiveness analysis of any nation on earth that has a calculator. Unfortunately, in the United States, we don't have a calculator. How do myeloma drugs come to market? It's not a good picture. It's riddled with errors. We, we tolerate uncertainty. We run trials with, with surrogate endpoints. And what happens is just a few years later, many, many of our products are probably not even helping patients, or we don't know how to use them to help patients. We are tolerating massive uncertainty. Why do we use response rate? Why do we use PFS so much? We do so because it saves time. That's the mantra the industry would have you believe, that it saves time to bring these products to market. But it doesn't save time. We've analyzed this question. First, let me show you the raw data. Storm uncontrolled study. Horizon uncontrolled study. That's how long it took from accruing the first patient to data locking the database that was published. Boston RCT. Ocean RCT. That's how long it took. 38 months, 33 months. 37 months, 44 months. It's quite comparable. And if you do this for every myeloma drug, DERA, ISA, ELO, PANO, Carfilzomib, you will see it's rather comparable. How can that be, you're asking yourself. Response precedes pure regression, which precedes overall survival. You're thinking about it wrong. You're thinking about it for the individual patient. But when you think about a trial, you need to think The trial time, which is when the date the first patient was enrolled, the date the last patient was enrolled, and the cutoff date for the primary analysis. And in an analysis led by Emerson Chen from the Oregon Health and Science University and myself, we estimated how much time gets shaved off by using response rate and progression-free survival. And what we found was sobering. All of these drugs I've shown you came to the market in multiply relapsed disease states. And if you look in those disease states, use of surrogate endpoints, I don't save you any time at all. This is the table. Go to the bottom. Look at the referent. The referent is survival. The study duration for response rate and overall survival is exactly the same in third and prior line. That's because for responses, you have to wait until people have responses, then you gotta wait again to measure the median duration of response. Overall survival is an endpoint that can always happen. It's just simple math. This does not save time. It just adds uncertainty and it makes companies rich, but it does not save time. We have big problems in myeloma trials. We don't know how to prove drugs. We're not running randomized control trials measuring overall survival in the latter lines, even though that would accrue at the exact same pace. And you'll get the result the exact same day. We'll talk more about that. We also don't know when to treat. This is a graph that shows B cell Malignancies, you can imagine there's a continuum of B-cell clonality from MGUS to smoldering to full-blown myeloma, meeting the CRAB criteria. In 2014, the International Myeloma Working Group sat down and said, we're going to change the definition. We're going to include 60% plasma cell burden, MRI findings, or exquisitely skewed free light chain ratios as part of a myeloma illness, so those people will be treated too. By changing this definition from here to here, They have, paradoxically, in the absence of any treatment, they've improved the five-year survival in smoldering. Why, of course, they did that. They removed the worst actors. They also improved the five-year survival in myeloma because they added the best actors. And this is called the Will Rogers effect. Named after Will Rogers, the radio broadcaster who once famously said, when the Okies left Oklahoma and moved to California, they raised the average intelligence in both states. I don't stand by that. That's an old joke, but that's where it comes from. But that's what they did. They raised five-year survival by changing the definition. Does the definition change make sense? Let's just talk about free light chain ratio. Their own data shows that if you have exquisitely skewed free light chain ratios at two years, About a quarter of those people have never progressed. You're treating somebody who wasn't going to progress in two years, and even with five-year time horizon, there's still 5% of people who would not have progressed. We're treating people who are asymptomatic. We don't have randomized control trial evidence showing that these people benefit from the early treatment. And who sponsors the IMWG? These are their sponsors. What am I to think when the IMWG changes the definition that makes drug companies rich? And these are their sponsors. And they do so in the absence of randomization, proving that change in definition helps patients. What am I to think? But it's more than this. They want us to treat high-risk smoldering myeloma. They want us to treat that as well. The data that supports that is the Jesus San Miguel study. This study is too small. It's underpowered. It's a phase two study. It says phase three here, but it's a phase two study. The primary endpoint is progression-free survival. It's not overall survival. The overall survival benefit people hang their hat on. But the problem with this is PET CT wasn't done at entry. They probably had some occult myeloma in there. Primary endpoint was PFS, not overall survival. When you treat someone earlier than you otherwise would, you can't just show you delay progression. That's a tautology. You have to show they live longer, live better. Survival in an underpowered study, when it's not the primary endpoint, is simply too noisy to hang your hat on. The FDA would never accept this. See also Lartruvo, for those people who are savvy in oncology. Finally, when they progressed on the control arm, they got delinquent antiquated therapy. Only eight people received lenalidomide. Poor post-protocol care. I can't trust that OS. That's an unreliable OS signal. And thankfully, the cooperative groups believed that. They knew it was unreliable. So they launched the, launched the ECOG study. ECOG was supposed to measure the treatment of high-risk smoldering versus observation. Its primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Its secondary endpoint was overall survival. But the moment they saw the PFS benefit, the ECOG investigators, they took their useful study and they sabotaged it and they crossed everyone over to Revlimid, thus ruining the PFS estimate, confounding that. And now we will forever not know. There is no ongoing study in smoldering myeloma that asks... Treating these people early, do they live longer as a result? Meanwhile, we're moving into quadruplet therapy and smoldering. What's next? Giving quadruplet therapy to a healthy person and measure time to MGUS? Where will it stop? We need good randomized studies measuring what matters. For this reason, I draw my line here. I tell people, you don't have to treat a patient with a free light chain ratio of 100 or more. You can watch such a person in the right situation. We don't have to follow the International Myeloma Working Group blindly. Okay, the last point. We don't know how to sequence the drugs. We don't know how to sequence the drugs we have, the good drugs we have, and we do have good drugs. We have drugs that actually work. Velcade has saved lives. Revlimid has saved lives. Carfilzomib has saved lives. Daratumumab has saved lives, and pomalidomab has saved lives. We have some drugs that really do work, but we don't know how to use them. All of the clinical trials, hundreds, thousands of clinical trials of these products, and we have the faintest idea of how to use them because the principles of using drugs have always been the same. Maximize survival, maximize quality of life, and use the least amount of drug possible. All things being equal, use the least amount of drugs as possible. The companies would have you use the most amount of drugs possible, and that's the fundamental disconnect. Why do we have these bad trials? Bad control arms in myeloma studies. We've known for a long time triplets are better than doublets for PFS, and yet repeatedly sponsors use doublet control arms and show PFS victories. We've known Revlimid has a survival benefit in maintenance, and yet sponsors come in and they test their novel drug against a maintenance of observation. That's delinquent antiquated therapy. If you wouldn't have your own mother be on the control arm of the study, you should not enroll on that study. And we see this problem in this paper published by Mani and myself and colleagues. We looked at the control arm quality across randomized control trials in myeloma. These were the classic examples, people going up against palm decks, not having a control arm, doing observation as a maintenance strategy. You get the picture. 49 randomized trials met our inclusion criteria. 14% enrolled people on a negligent control arm after it had been proven negligent. After it was known to be inferior for that endpoint. 18% continued enrolling people on a negligent control arm after data emerged during the course of the study. They could have made a protocol amendment. They chose not to. And here's the key: they can't say, I don't know. They can't protest. Because 75% of these studies had the exact same investigators on the trials. It's the same group of people. They know Pomdex has been beaten, and yet They go back to POMDEX for their control arm, while they would never randomize their own mother to POMDEX. And that to me is unthinkable. We cannot run trials like this. They help no one. They don't help people in global countries because after the trial is over, they can't afford the new drug. They don't help people in the United States and the United Kingdom because they don't inform us because the control arm is not what we're actually doing. They help no one, except the companies. Bad post-protocol therapy. When it comes to overall survival and you use triplets or quadruplets up front, you need to know Do you actually live longer or live better than had you spaced those drugs out throughout the course of a cancer journey? That's the question the patient faces. Remember, they only care about living longer, living better. But these trials routinely use bad post-protocol therapy. By that I mean, they don't give you the drug that's already available on the back end. They do so mostly by going to global sites. We analyze this. This is reporting of post-protocol therapies and nutrition in multiple myeloma, randomized clinical trials, again led by Mani Moyudin uh, and, and the same group of colleagues, our all-star cast. We looked at 103 randomized control trials in multiple myeloma. Of this, 45 43% reported subsequent treatments in any publication. And for the vast majority of patients in these myeloma studies, they're not telling me if I do DARA RD in the Maya study, what percent of people on the control arm eventually got DARA. But that matters because my current clinical practice is VRD, but then I have like a DARA VD second line therapy. That's how I like to do things. So I need to know if you're giving the control arm DARA on progression before I feel like it's proving to me the routine upfront application of DARA is superior to saving DARA and having something in your back pocket. This was a graph we put together for this talk, and we've analyzed the percent of people who receive receive an experimental drug in a ladder line. These are all drugs that seek to move forward in our therapy. They've already established a foothold in the ladder line, and they seek to move them forward. And you see it for Palm, for Dara, for LEN. And the question here is, if you were on the control arm of the study, how many of you eventually got that drug? And the answer is it should be about 100%. If you want to inform my practice, it should be about 100%. But what you see here is over and over and over. It is shy of that and a sea of not reported. This is unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. So we have big problems with multiple myeloma trials. We're not answering basic questions. We don't know how to approve new drugs. And because we don't know how to approve new drugs, by that I mean, we rely too heavily on surrogate endpoints like response rate and progression-free survival, We're not doing randomized control trials in pentarefractory or quadruple refractory settings, measuring overall survival. Because of that, we have a huge false positive rate. We're approving drugs that cannot establish whether or under what circumstances they help people live longer or live better. These drugs are not cheap. This is not aspirin. These are tens of thousands of dollars a month that we are spending at a societal level on drugs that we don't know if you live longer or better. I have no clue if the world is better off with melflufen or not. In fact, I suspect it's not. I have no clue if the world is better off with bilantimab, mafidotin or not. In fact, I I suspect not. And selenexer, I'm sorry, I strongly suspect the world would be better off without selenexer. And if Pfizer developed selenexer and not a small company, Pfizer would have abandoned it for toxicity. That's my thought. We are not approving drugs because we are held prisoner by a mental model that says it would take too long to measure overall survival. I want to tell you right now, clearly, in a pentorefractory myeloma setting, it is the fastest, most efficient, and best way to get that drug to market is to run a randomized trial measuring overall survival as your initial study in the pentorefractory setting. It will result even faster than a response rate in a tertiary refractory setting, okay? That's my message to you today. We need to run those studies so we approve drugs appropriately. The second thing when to treat. We can't live in a world where we give people Revlimid and measure time to MGUS. We can't just keep treating earlier and earlier. Of course, the companies want that. They're going to make money hand over fist. The more you move into high-risk smoldering or smoldering or MGUS, the more you use quadruple therapies in smoldering, they're making money hand over fist. More of a person's life is spent as a patient and less of their life is spent free of medications. They want that. Now, it's up to us, the doctors in the room, the last bulwark against their capitalism to say, you need to prove to me the patient lives longer and lives better as a result of that choice. You need to prove to me that by treating early and smoldering versus treating later with appropriate drugs, there is a survival or health-related quality of life benefit. To do that, you need a control arm, by the way. Most of those smoldering studies are uncontrolled. That's unethical, in my opinion, and you cannot cross people over who still are smoldering you have to cross them over appropriately when they progress these are rookie rookie choices we've known this for a long time in oncology we have forgotten all those principles and as a result i personally don't think you should treat high-risk smoldering and i don't think a free light chain ratio of 100 is a good enough reason to treat someone why would i treat someone with there's a one in four chance that they could be observed for two years unless I have proof that treating them makes them live longer, live better, I don't have that proof. They changed that definition. They never generated appropriate evidence for that change. And the organization is taking too much money from pharma for me to believe that they're doing so in a purely non-conflicted way. We don't know how to sequence the drugs. Once we have drugs that are active and efficacious in the last lines, like darA, we really don't know when to give darA, And we are soon going to get to the point where people are talking about darA DER- krd as the initial therapy. I have no idea If you're going to be better off getting Dara KRD versus getting VRD, then Dara VD, then saving carfilzomib for a third line, I have no idea because they're not running trials with appropriate post-protocol therapy. They're not measuring health-related quality of life across the journey of the cancer. They're not measuring overall survival routinely, and they're throwing up their hands and saying they can't because it takes too long. As I've shown you before, particularly for the relapse setting, that is a falsehood. More money has flown into myeloma since since the 19 since since the advent of bortezomib over the last 22 years. It is a field soaked in cash and the investigators have tremendous consulting relationships with the company, but we need a few myeloma doctors like Mani Moyudin and others to stand up and say enough is enough. I'm happy to use your products, many are good and life-saving, but I'll only use them if they save lives and improve outcomes. So, my solutions no more uncontrolled trials in the last line setting. We need randomized controlled trials. Do a randomized trial in a pentarefractory setting, measure OS, and then subsequent RCTs have to test whether moving the product up is superior to reserving it for a later line. We can't treat earlier or continuously without proof of OS or quality of life. That's all absolutely unacceptable. And I do think we need to ban the thought leaders from taking pharmaceutical company payments Disclosure is not a solution. In fact, in studies, it shows that it actually fosters a false trust with the discloser. We need recusal. You can't sit on the NCCN committee that mandates what Medicare, the U.S. payment agency, will pay for and run the trial and take $100,000 a year from the drug company. You can't do all those three things, in my opinion. You need to sever that, have three different groups of people do it. Whenever I think about a study, I ask myself, does even having this drug in the armamentarium increase overall survival for my patients? That should be the bar for regulatory approval. And once I have a drug, where can I use this drug to maximize survival and quality of life? And for most of the myeloma drugs, although I'm pretty confident they're active and they have a role like the ones I mentioned, I don't know when to use it. And for the ones I mentioned earlier that have failed in phase three trials, I know when to use it. The answer is never. So what questions are current myeloma trials not answering? I hate to say it, Despite thousands and thousands of randomized control trials, they're not answering the questions that are most important to patients. They're not answering, how do I use drugs that maximize survival and quality of life? They're answering, how do I use as many drugs as possible to maximize market share and take advantage of this patient population that has no cure in sight? that's what they're answering. We need to shift that. And if we don't do that in the next two decades, I suspect our entire profession will face strict external regulation, which is what no doctor really wants, but it is coming. You can't keep spending healthcare. You can't keep spending GDP like this without some accountability. It is coming. So those are my thoughts. If you like this, future things to explore, check out my YouTube channel. I make videos for many of the new drug approvals. we got a good one about teclistamab, but I didn't talk about teclistamab. I kind of like it for the response rate, but I think it's Its uh, infection rate will poison it as it tries to move to the front line. Listen to the podcast, Plenary Session. We focus on oncology clinical trials, and we break them down for you. And finally, read the book, Malignant. Malignant gets into how to think about cancer clinical trials. It breaks it down for you. That's my email on the screen. If you have questions about multiple myeloma, you can email me. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your conference.